Welcome everyone to Plugged and Unplanned. It's Tony Nash back with you again. And I am told by my team that today is the last of the Plugged and Unplanned series. I've hosted it for three years and I've had the opportunity to meet some incredible authors uh, in the world of business, entrepreneurship, leadership, sales, etc. And I've definitely learned a lot from my guests. But the guys have got me going onto a new program called the Tony Nash podcast. And I'll be interviewing business people and thought leaders and as well authors. So you can always keep an eye out for what activity we're up to on LinkedIn. And um, today, though, I have my final author for the series, Donna McGeorge, and she is the author of, and I better bring up because I've got a whole other page here, The One Day Refund, Take, ba Take Back Time, Spend It Wisely. And this is her 10th book, third in the series uh, with uh, the publisher Wiley. It's about time as the series. Welcome to the program. Tony, thanks for having me. And I'm a little bit honoured to be your last guest in this series. I don't know. It feels like a bit of a red letter day, really. Yeah, no, it's all all good. And hey, it's about time. So let's um, let's get let's get going. And and uh, you said to me off air before we started that you're um, a, a a person who's addicted to writing or an author who just can't stop uh, tapping away at a keyboard. I would imagine so. Um, 10 books, and you, you've done that since 2014, so more than a book a year. Um, that's, that is quite impressive. But let's, let's talk about uh, The One Day Refund, which is the book that you've just published. Um, what, what, what are the origins of that? Um, it kind of started, it started actually, um, me making observations about how people were responding to the pandemic in 2020 and how you know, working from home and how just the, the nature of work was changing. And I was talking to a few people around how they were struggling with capacity. And so I was around a board table with um, in a very rare face-to-face -face, uh, meeting and I was talking to a bunch of ladies and one of them, very direct lady, I said, you know, I was musing. She was talking about her lack of capacity and I said, oh, maybe I should write a book about capacity. And she said, I'd buy that. And so I immediately went home and started you know, not necessarily tapping straight away, but starting to really kind of research and think about what does capacity mean and how do we manage our capacity and what would happen if we were managed manage to create uh, some more space in our world such that we would end up with, a, you know, refund of our time. We would end up with extra time in our week. Mm. Capacity is an interesting word, isn't it? It's not one that we use that often. Well, we do, but we don't necessarily think of it in that context in terms of our own um abundant resource so so um okay so that so that, that's where the origins of this comes from and when i look at the um the chapter headings um in terms of you know why why we need to take back time part one that's a really good one so just talk a little then about about that and what your observations were what what are this, you know i don't want to give too much away because i want people to buy the book you know, so <laughs> thank you. Don't, don't go into too much detail. <laughs> uh, we're trying to pique people's interest here, and and you know whether you want to buy it on Booktopia or any other bookstore, please please do. Um, but you know why why we need to? I mean, that's obviously why we need to take back time. That's obviously um, it's a, a bunch of words. You can't take back time, but um, create more time. What what you know? What are your observations? 
Well, it's interesting. I try really hard not to use the word more if I can, because too often people are saying I want to be more productive or I need more time or I want to be doing more with less. Like this word more um, really inspired this aspect of the book around well, what when we've got a to some extent, a finite amount of capacity or time that we can use. So it's not about trying to get more. It's about really managing the space that we have. It's about, you know, using what we have better rather than trying to think, where do I get? Because it's impossible to get more, right? So we've got to take back some control of what we already have. Um, and when I was looking at some of the research, you know, Australians typically are workaholics. We do heaps of like in the millions of hours of um, unpaid overtime we million about over three million of us rarely take a lunch break and we've got something like over 30 million days of holidays banked that we never take and so for me it was you know it's all there for us to to claim if we actually worked a bit smarter or be, be a bit more thoughtful about how we're using the existing capacity that we have. Mm. So if I think about myself there, because I mean, um, having ADHD, which I found out about five years ago that I have it because my son was diagnosed. And I think about the way that I obsess about um, getting into something. I mean, Booktopia largely um, was created through obsession and working many, many long hours and just wanting to be the very best that we could be with the limited resources that we have. So it can serve you to a degree, obviously. Um, but then there comes a point in time where you also need to um, haul back and, and replenish. I do, I do remember a time um, distinctly, and I, I vaguely remember making a, a considered change. And that was kind of felt like I was filling up my, my petrol tank with $3 worth of fuel because I knew that would last me through the day. And then I'd always feel like I'm running on empty. And, and then when I worked that out for some reason, um, to, to then have a full tank and then to be putting in $3 a, a day, but just topping it back up that night, there's a big difference in terms of my energy and in, in terms of, I, I, I can't even remember what I did, but it was because now it's subconscious. But it, it, it's, a, it's really a, a sense of that exhaustion, isn't it, of, of time and effort, energy? And, and I absolutely love that analogy because I think you're right. I think people do. They just put in the bare minimum that they need to do to get through the day and then they fall into bed in a massive heap. So this idea that we fuel ourselves in whatever form that takes so for some of us, it's are we are we sleeping the way we should? Are we putting actual fuel in our systems? Are we eating the way we should? Are we moving the way we should? Because they're the things that keep our tank topped up. And it's funny, I've never been, you know, quite literally never been the kind of person that ever let my car go below about a quarter of a tank. Because I, I think I think it's just you know, history, my dad saying to me at one point, oh, you don't want to do that because then there's rubbish in the bottom of the tank and it can mess with your engine, blah, blah, blah. Um, and so I've always had that analogy in my head that we wouldn't run our cars down to empty. Why would we do that to our bodies or ourselves or our minds? Like we, we need to create that space and have that fuel so we can continue to do what we do. And 
And so do you do work with people like um, on this? So how, how do you, what, what's your, I mean, you're obviously a prolific writer, but when, when you think about your data, are you consulting with people and, and companies? Oh, yeah, I, I, I do one-on-one coaching, group work, and then I work in organisations as well. Um, and because my, really my, um, my shtick, if you will, is working smarter. So whether it's through the other two books in the series where one was about meetings and one was about structuring your day. Um, so whether it's that kind of work or this new work that I'm doing is really helping people. Most of the stuff I've done so far is around getting that foundational stuff right. So people will come to me and say, I'm out of control, I'm overwhelmed, and I'm at risk of failing at the important things. And the first thing we do is stop and take stock. Let's just stop where you're at and just look at where you're at, what you're doing, what's important, and how are you travelling around doing the things that are important. So that for me, that's the best advice I give any of my clients is just we've just got to stop and take stock before we make any you know, massive changes to how we're doing the world. Can I ask you, um, it's kind of a bit of a tangent and not. Um, do you, from your experience now working with people, do you, do you feel like this is something that you need to be mature or over 25? You need to have gone through school. You need to have gone out to the workforce or gone through uni or you know, moved out of home. And then you, then you could, you've got to be able to start, you know, they say your brain is fully formed um, by, you know, 24, 25. So is it one of those things where you can't work with teenagers on this because um, it's the antithesis of, of their purpose, and that is to, you know, be lazy, um, delay, procrastinate, um, or, or is it something that, if we could get our teenagers to start the practice of these kind of um, habits, that they would um, be so much more effective later on. Just out of curiosity, is it something that you actually do need to be, uh, have got to a certain level and you go, enough is enough. I cannot operate like that. It drives me crazy. I want to, I need to kind of change my, my circumstances, my life, my sense of, purpose or, or can you start young you know it's a great question because I haven't thought about this in terms of teenagers so I can only reflect on my own experience of being a teenager um, and knowing I can't do the things I used to do so I just do not have the capacity to I mean I like many teenagers I used to have the capacity to go out partying all night and not get home till four in the morning fall into bed for a couple of hours and then drag myself up out of bed and go to work Right? I used to be able to do that. Um, I just can't. Like at 55, I just can't do that now. So I think there's an aspect of you're absolutely right. There's a maturity that says I have to now own the fact that I'm not the person I used to and I need systems and tools and processes in place to continue helping me do the work. And so it's habits around even everything from how do I do to-do lists, you know, how do I run meetings? It's useful to have systems just to be helpful to free up our capacity to, to have the important conversations. So back to teenagers, I'm, I'm kind of with you on this idea that up until, you know, the research says up until about 23, they're not fully developed um, yet. And I think, that's, I think that's the time where you should. 
you know, I, th- I think contrast is really important. You know, I, I do run amok a little bit. I do lay around. I don't make, you know, you've got plenty of years ahead of you as a teenager to make tough decisions and make tough calls and have to show up responsibly. You know, is there, do we not have the opportunity to give give younger people the opportunity to, to you know, play, if you will? Um, having said that, I've got a family full of uh, teenagers and young people um, and they all love Auntie Donna's stuff. Um, and to the extent that they can, they apply it. So um, they're all very aware of my work around understanding your chronotype and your body clock and what happens when you mess with your, you know, whether you're a night owl or an early bird and what happens when you mess with your chronotype and how that can affect you. So they all talk to me about their first two hours of the day and making sure that they protect that. Um, and now they're talking to me about thinking space. That's probably the one that they talk about the most is that they also feel overwhelmed with the volume of information and stuff available to them. And so they do talk to me a little bit about how they need a little bit more thinking space and breathing space, even young people. Mm, Because that's uh, part of part two of your book. Mm. Um, I'm talking with author Donna McGeorge and her new book, The One Day Refund, published by John Wiley. Take take back time, spend it wisely. Um, And part two talks about thinking space breathing space and so forth so um ha- i mean as i said i don't want to give too much away uh, this is supposed to pique your interest and this is i can tell by the uh, the number of pages this is obviously a great airport book um or a short read if you're buying it on booktopia and you're uh, like a you can smash through it i guess in a in a few hours couple of hours uh, it's a it's a it's probably more like a handbook workbook um, um those four parts thinking breathing living working um was that in writing the book did it take you a while to work out thinking breathing living working or was it already clear to you from the outset and you didn't have to navigate your way through to find those four areas I just listened to people when they would talk to me about the problems that they were experiencing around their capacity and sentences like, I just don't have the space to think. I don't have any breathing space. I can never, you know, particularly for those working from home, navigating their living space around having to create now a space for work and a space for home and a space for relaxation. And then everyone talks about, you know, I'm overwhelmed at work and I've just got too much on. So it started, it started to form there. Um, its original origin started with headspace. I started to, you know, people would say, I just don't have headspace. And I started to think about the difference between um, mental capacity and physical capacity. And so mental capacity is kind of that I just don't have headspace. I can't think I'm feeling mentally overwhelmed. And physical capacity was, you know, I'm living in a context where I can't find my car keys. I can't find my wallet you know I can't find my sunglasses and every time I go to leave the house there's an uproar and it's just a constant state of chaos and so as I began to listen to people it started to form in 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 the crosshairs if you will of um physical uh, sorry uh, mental and physical space and then personal and professional lives and so then you know the thinking breathing living and working space started to form in that framework mm, interesting and of course, um, you wrote this during the pandemic and people working from home. Do you feel, um, and you talked about those extra hours, T- to me, I mean, it's Booktopia, right? So, um, but I was like that before Booktopia. It's, it's, 
I, I love it. I enjoy working. I'm 58, well, 58. Now that we're in 2022, next year, I'm going to be 60. Um, so um, but I, I don't see it as work. I, I love what I do. I love um, what we've created. People here and, and everything that we've done. So, um, but do you, do you worry about um, the fact that people are now working from home and that, um, you know, it all blends into each other and are they, are they now working more than they've ever done before because it's only, the office is only three steps away. Um, yeah, the, the numbers are certainly stacking up that way as the research is starting to come out. It's taking a while and most of the stuff I've looked at has come out of the US. Um, but there's definitely information that says people are on average working an extra hour a day. So, of course, that means that some people might be working more or less. But my, my observation of those that I speak to and my clients and when I'm having the conversations is that what we're missing is the contextual markers. So you're absolutely right. It's just too easy to go from getting out of bed to directly onto the computer. Whereas the, the contextual marker or the, the indicator that I've left home and starting work has gone, which was the commute, the daily commute to you know, leaving home, getting to the office. And that would mark out, I was at home and now I'm at work. Um, and so we miss, we're missing all of that. Um, and so people just, it just blended in. And, and whereas we, had an opportunity potentially to think a little bit differently. And that's starting to happen. People are thinking differently. I had a guy say to me the other day that he, he recognised that issue for him. So he, at the end of the day, of his work day when he's at home, he packs up his laptop and uh, puts it into its laptop in its bag, goes out the door, does a walk around the block and then comes back inside and puts his laptop down at the door. And then he's at home. And then in the morning, he goes, picks up his laptop, does a walk around the block, comes back, and now he's at work. And that was one of the ways he managed that um, because he said it was. It just meant that I went basically from waking to sleeping and even during mealtime still accessing emails was still available. And it's interesting, right, because, you know, some studies, this was out of the UK, show that on average most people are productive whatever that might mean, producing stuff, only about three hours a day. And the other, I don't know, say five hours in a working day um, were spent on, you know, moving from meeting to meeting, having a bit of a yak, having a meal, go make a cup of tea, whatever it might be. And so I think during the pandemic, we saw so many more people feeling like they had to prove that they were being productive and the expectation of being 100% on 100% of the time I think it was crazy. I mean, we we let, let's just let's just double it for the sake of numbers and say that the the employees of Booktopia are productive six hours a day. That still meant they didn't have to be on a hundred percent on a hundred percent of the time. So I just think it's crazy that we put that pressure on ourselves, and we're starting to see people recognizing that as we kind of move into whatever 2022 is going to look like. That wasn't my experience of Booktopia. My experience was that. Um, People enjoyed, um, okay, let's, uh, let's roll it back a little. So the first thing is, is that I know people wanted to work from home and people had been working from home before the pandemic, but my, um, my uh, reticence to kind of really make that more formal um, was, um, was because I, I felt that the, the synergy, the energy at the office 
is where the magic happens. And to have been to you know, rip the Band-Aid off, jump in the cold bath, um, like, and you had to do it within 48 hours, um, the ultimate outcome of that was that um, uh, my team knew that I knew that they knew that they were productive and that I trusted them to get on with it. And that whole experience of us going through that passage of working history together was phenomenal. So for me to realize, hey, that that really is worthwhile. Now that we're coming to the, hopefully we're coming to the end of, who knows, coming to the end of it um, after two years, um, it could be another year, but um, to me now it is is like, well, what's best for the customer? The only question to ask yourself, is it better for me to be working at home so I'm not disturbed, so I can be focused? Uh, I've got to get through spreadsheets or I've got to write a strategy document or some, I don't know, whatever it is that you're doing, is it better for me to be at home uh, for the customer um, versus um, being at the office? And uh, for those that um, say, no, I want to work from home, is that just better for you rather than better for the customer? And ultimately, it's not going to be better for them because there's a lot of things that happen. When you're rubbing shoulders with many of the other talented people that you work with in the office, that's how you further your career. That's how you get noticed. That's how you get opportunities. And I, I do worry for those that are desperate to work from home all the time because the, they do understand the advantages. They do. They don't have to commute. They, they do win back time, like you talk about. Um, but in the long term, I think uh, people are going to um, realize that it's a blended mix of which being at the office um, has tremendous uh, value to to the customer, but also to them and their career and the people that they work with. We'll, we'll see how it plays out. Yeah, look, it's always the challenge of the end, isn't it? It's never an either or. And we're seeing that now as organisations are starting to figure out where is the right place to do the right work? And so I love the, your approach around, so you're in a customer serving business. So what is right for the customer is, is, is uh, important to think about. But you know, you're, you're clearly, you know, a connected and an interested leader. Um, I had people telling me stories about, you know, being given timesheets and having to prove what they did for every hour of the day. So you know, that to me says that in, in I think the pandemic um, amplified everything. And so if you had a, you know, you've got a team of, you know, 300 committed people who like their work and love what they're doing, then that was amplified through it. If you've got teams that, that weren't really that great or a leader that didn't communicate well or, or whatever, then that was amplified, right? So I do think it depends on what, what was the, I don't know, what was the clay that you were working with as you began to make these changes? Um, but, but I'm with you. I don't, I don't yet know where we're at because I, I as, a, as someone who loves hanging out with people, um, I agree. The, the synergy, the, the magic that's created when you're in a room with people, which is how this book even came about, was through sitting in a room with people and just, I don't know, there's... You're right. There's something kind of intangible and yet magic about being with others. Mm. So, uh, can I ask you with your series, three books in the series? Mm. Is it a trilogy? Is it a? Have you finished? Is this Tolkien and you're done, or 
is it um is it game of thrones and we've got many more to come is it a is it a you know a friend is it this a friend series so 275 episodes um what what what's installed well i don't think it'll be 270 something but i do if if anyone has, is familiar with the the series so far it's going up in increments of time so the first book was the 25 minute meeting the second book was the first two hours and this one is the one day refund. And so if you're following the bouncing ball, the next one will probably about, be about a week. Then I'll do something about a about months. Then I'll do something about year. And then by then I reckon I'll be ready to stop. So uh, provided my publisher is continuing, if Wiley's happy to continue working with me, I think there's probably seven, um, but that could be pretty optimistic. Uh, and, you know, I don't know, I may change my mind. But at the moment the plan is uh, to continue in increments of time, um, you know, Maybe I'll stick a decade book in there. I don't know yet. Mm, interesting, hey. Mm. Um, so, so when um, let's let's go off on a, a bit of a different uh, tangent. Then, when you were uh, at school and young, um, and you think of the the classroom and the teachers, and did they did do you did do you reckon they'll go? Oh yeah, Donna. Yeah, she was going to be an author, of course. Or were they? Or were they thinking? Um, you know, they, what? She's an author? You're joking? Oh, look, I'd love to tell you a story about you know how I had an English teacher that inspired me. But um, I was raised in a Navy family, so in one period of my life, I went to seven schools in seven years. So I, a, I don't think any teachers would remember me. Uh, first of all, and my maiden name is Smith. So pretty um, remarkable name and an unmemorable uh, student, I would think. I suspect probably if, if I, there's, there was one um, English slash history teacher that I think they would probably think that I was going to go on to do something because I remember him being, after moving around so much, um, when I finally got to my last school, which was in at about year nine at high school, um, I had because the school systems didn't talk to each other that well across states they just threw me into the lowest group because they couldn't figure out how to you know put my results into some kind of format and so this English history teacher kept looking at me going what are you doing here like why are you in this class because I was literally in the class with the kids that were not terribly academic minded or had plans to go on to things that didn't require academia. Nothing wrong with that. They just weren't that interested in it. And I was probably the standout kid, a bit like Hermione Granger, sticking my hand up the whole time being a show off. Um, so I suspect he might um, uh, have maybe had an inkling of it. But I think it's probably less about writing and more about um, the discipline of and the adaptability, I think, of being raised in a Navy household and, and moving. And um, so we were always very punctual and, and orderly and organised as a family, um, partly because if you're moving all the time, so it's not just dad imposing that from a Navy perspective, but mum having to keep things organised. Um, and, you know, I've always, always known that I can do whatever I want once I set my mind to it. So I've got a pretty good track record of going, hey, I wouldn't mind trying that, giving it a crack and going, yep, I can do that. So writing books is just, for me, ended up being something that I wanted to have a crack at. I've done it and I like it and I'll keep doing it until I don't like it. That's so great. That's so, that's so great. Hey, um, capacity. So 
do you it's a bit of i'm i'm leading you down down a, a certain path here i'll i'll share what i've my insight um and then whether that whether that's reflective of what you've discovered or doing so i like to break down words i've mentioned this before on other uh, programs so you take a word like disappointment right disappointment appointment is such a bland you know i've got an appointment to you know do a podcast i've got an appointment with my doctor i've got an appointment to have lunch that's an appointment right and then you put this in front of it how can it be so heavy it's like oh my god you know disappointment so like how does that even work it's because you had an expectation and uh, your expectation was never met so as soon as you start to unpack it then all of a sudden it's like all oh, right that's why i'm disappointed okay and then you get a bit of freedom around the the energy that's associated with it and you go okay right that's what i was expecting and therefore i can let that go a little easier um you know for example and there's there's other words but one of the ones that i um um a few years ago i forget when someone was talking and i thought about it was capacity cap a city it's like cap a city when you break down what does it mean like to cap a city it's like saying okay you've got a city or you've got a an entity and you're just gonna cap it you're just gonna stop it from from being any bigger than it can be and it's like oh okay so capacity um is how big something can be and so therefore what can i do because um cities continue to grow their the suburbs get bigger and sydney has grown and grown and grown and grown right same as other cities around australia and around the world so then what have i got to do to increase that capacity to then be able to fill it later on um was i remember when i had thought about it, i thought oh i never really thought about capacity views words and you go right so how am i limiting myself what have what are the things that i've done to say that's it that's as much as i can honestly take i mean we get 24 hours in the day true but um or 60 minutes in an hour but you know, what what is the capacity of that how how much can i really fit into that hour is is that in line or is it different to what you think i've thought about it that way i've never broken the word down that way we're putting a cap on our city i get that and when you know if i was to extend the idea a little bit cities can do one of two things they are and there's plenty of cities over the over the globe that have examples of this where they have not only reached capacity but they're they're overflowing and what happens there is we end up with poor health services and public transport systems that don't work and roads that are just in a mess um, and so if you're thinking if we continue that idea you're absolutely right cities can do one of two things we either have to cap them and say no one else can move here um, or we have to say, how do we broaden? And usually when, you know, a city like Sydney says we're going to open up a new residential space, they're also, the planners are also thinking, right, so what does public transport look like out there? What does the road systems look out there? What is, you know, what's the school system, shopping, access to amenities, all of that, what does that start to look like? So there's more to it than just, you know, we're going to just open up a suburb, right? Now for, for us, I, I kind of think of it as just thinking about your wardrobe. So, you know, when I, I've got two choices, when I, when, when my wardrobe is at capacity or beyond, um, I either cap it and say, I'm not buying anymore, or I've got to get a bigger wardrobe, move into another room or start removing some of the stuff out of it. Now in a city, 
I don't know that we can just stop removing people, but I think we can remove friction. And so what can we take out of a city? So, you know, cities that have taken out traffic in the main CBD area is a way of making it easier for people to move around in that system. Um, so I think it's an interesting way of thinking about it. And, and, and I'm with you. It's like, what am I, what do I either need to cap? What am I done? I'm done. And I just can't do any more. Or given that I have hit cap, what are my options for expanding or somehow creating additional capacity, uh, moving into a new wardrobe or whatever? It's interesting if you look at Booktopia because Booktopia has butted up. I mean, we've grown 30-odd percent, 15, 18 years, right, to every year. So um, we've we've grown. We've grown from 60 square metres in uh, 2004, um, 500 square metres, 2,000, 4,000, 10,000. We're now... Um, up to 30,000 square meters. And I know that when we start to butt up against the capacity of the building, um, it's just everything slows down. There's just, you just need to have space to operate um, wasted, unused, never used capacity to get things done faster. It's amazing how much things slow down and the costs uh, increase when, you, when you're butting up against that. It's 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 really um, tangible from my perspective. Um, people, I really want, I really want to ram that home. Having that feeling of having that extra space, um, knowing that you've got you're not using it all, I think is is really really important. I was um, this is an interesting one. It's an interesting one to to um, you know contemplate on. I was at the ashes the other day. Um, and I was sitting next to a SMH journalist, um, and we, we were in a group with from the book industry, publishing industry, and so forth. And we were talking about because uh, I'd lived in England for a couple of years, the size of cricket grounds in the UK, and because the, the game is so old and the cities are so old, the biggest grounds are like twenty five, twenty eight thousand people. So. I said, how does that really help the game when people can't even go to the game? They've got to start building bigger stadiums. Now, is Australia, we're, we're a third of the size of, well, of England, the UK. Um, how can we continue to extend? How, how can we continue to play well above our population level? Um, how does New Zealand do that? Um, is it because we actually have bigger stadiums, which therefore gets more people going to the game, which then therefore makes the the, um, the people who play it more revered, uh, the, the desire to be a test player or now a big bash player one day? Like, that's really, and you think about capacity in that way and go, because who, I said, who goes to those games? And he goes, yeah, well, it's difficult. There's, mostly it's, um, it's men who have come from, Public, the public school system, which is our private school system, and their their children, or you know, there's not a lot of family kind of like we have men and women going together with the kids and watching the game. It's a, cl a classic example of how it could end up, uh, you know, the ripple effect of what that does by by limiting your capacity. Whereas their football stadiums are huge, massive, and and so it's it's um these are the kind of insights so then how does that play out in our own lives you hit on the two, two sports that i am polarized on 
Um, and what I mean by that is I love cricket. I love test cricket. You know, I, I love the fact that it was back on the telly and <clears throat> that we're playing and we're watching. So I, I really love it. And I can't stand soccer. So I'm sorry to anyone that's now I've had, I can't tell you how many Europeans have tried to change my opinion around that, but I'm like, nah, can't do it. Um, and so you really make an interesting point. So I'd love to have a look at stadium sizes in, say, India. Um, and is that similar? So I've been to Chennai. I haven't been to the cricket at Chennai, but I went to see the um, stadium there and it's pretty huge and they pack them in there as well. Um, and so has cricket become a game for the elites in England, whereas it's still a game for the every person in, say, Australia, in India, where you can have a, you can have a decent crack at it? Um, and I think that's probably why we have so much depth. If you just watched the last, uh, well, just the, the stories around selection for the last couple of tests, how much capacity or, or, you know, talent we have, we could probably field two teams at the moment. And so having it be much more accessible, uh, I think, means that that's, that's how we end up being, you know, great at cricket, for, for example. And maybe that's why uh, in England they're really good football or soccer because it's more of an every person sport you know you hear so many stories of the kid that was kicking the ball around in the street that then becomes a superstar um I don't know that you hear that much these days in cricket in the UK around that but you certainly hear it still in Australia that the kid in the backyard you know that was having a crack ends up becoming a superstar so that, so from a capacity perspective that's a really interesting insight around you know to what extent do we have to be conscious of how limited or greater can impact growth of, of whatever it is? So when you were talking about you, your um, facilities and butting up against being full, um, the magic number I talk about is the 15% rule. You should always have 15%, in your case, empty warehouse space. That means we can walk around uh, a little bit. I talk about 15% space in your diary. So it's no use to anyone. I just read an article about this the other day, actually, that um, it's really hard to work with busy people because you can never get space in their diary. So if I wanted to get an appointment with you, Tony, to have um, Lara say to me, I'm sorry, you can't get in his diary for six weeks, that makes you hard to do business with, right? And so do we have capacity in our diaries to make sure that we can take advantage of an opportunity that might present itself. And I think this is true for your cutlery drawer, for your wardrobe, for your garage, for anywhere where you've got a finite amount of space, keeping that buffer of 15%, um, I think is really important. So as you say, so you can begin to move around. And then it's probably even for, in your case, a safety thing, right? It's, it's a safer place to work when there's space around the facility. Mm, absolutely. So why don't we throw the microphone over to you, Donna, and and let you ask me a few things so those that are listening can get an insight to the kind of questions you might ask anybody should they um, go through a coaching session. And I'll I'll do my best to answer them. But uh, for those listening, uh, perhaps take those questions and and consider them yourself. So I'm going to put myself in a hot seat. Um, what what would you you, know, you meet someone perhaps for the first time you're going to start working with them what are some of the, the key questions that you'll you'll ask them um, i'll typically ask them what does their diary look like so how how does your diary look if i was to look at it am i going to see back-to-back -back meetings or am i going to see space so tell me a little bit about what your diary might look like to me it it's got space at the moment i mean we've just come out of the um this interview is being done on the 
12th of January. So um, we're just coming out of our Christmas New Year period. When um, we were um, listing on the ASX in December of 2020, um, it was full because there was fund manager presentations. There was um, signing off on documentation. It, it was it was pretty pretty full on. Um, the um, but mo most of the time, I have I have avail I have available. If you ask me, okay, so on of a week, how much of your diary is available? I would say fifty percent. That's pretty good. That's a pretty good start, right? Because that means you've got space to take advantage of. I always talk about adaptive capacity. This is what I'm most interested in with people is the level of adaptive capacity they have in their system, which is the space to recognise changes happening and then take, adva take advantage of the opportunities that may be presented with that. Now, during the pandemic, a lot of people talked about pivoting, you know, as, as an idea, but that's, that's one thing I'm always testing for is how much space do you have in your system? Um, you know, a classic question I'll ask is if you did have an extra day in your week, what would you do with it? That's a great question. Oh my goodness! Like, um, yeah. So there was just a, a like you had a pause button, and you could go, "All right." So the, I'm giving you the eighth day. Um, what would you do? Um, the first thing that popped into mind was actually have a game of golf, uh, which, um, which we, my wife and I always talk about having a game of golf. But have we got around to having a game of golf? No, we haven't. Um, so I think it would be, we do get to uh, relax and we get to um, um, kind of chill our kids uh, with us one week and with the other parents one week. We've got my son and my stepdaughter. So 26 weeks of the year where we're without children, which does uh, give us um, a lot more of that um, couple time that we would, a lot of families don't get. So I, I um, you know, we're very aware of that. And now as they get older, um, my son's finished high school uh, just last year and my stepdaughter is going into year 11. So they're getting older. They don't want to hang around us at all anyway, which is normal. Um, so um, it would be, uh, it would just simply be um, re re something relaxing. So you're in a pretty good situation that you've got the uh, capacity to be able to to be restful but even if I just went with the game of golf like if I went with that if you were my coaching client I would say what's preventing you from making space to do that right now and so what is preventing you from going and having a game of golf um well we've just moving house um we've renovated um we have a holiday house down in the southern highlands which quite frankly one of the most favorite things that I do is um, when I can is get on my ride on mower um, and and just mow grass. Uh, I'm so sorry, um, but that is just one of the most therapeutic and wonderful things when you have quite, uh, we've got a, a bit of land. And so it's just to, to look at that, the lawn afterwards is, is nothing more, more wonderful than doing that. So um, what I would say, um, to, if I was to if if I was to be really um, simplistic around it would be just not having put it in the calendar um, I reckon that's where I was going it's just at this point not a priority right and so when things become important when they become important 
And so if golf was really important to you, you'd be sticking it in the diary and it would be something that we would set in cement. But just just on the, um, just while, while we're talking about uh, right on mowers, uh, we recently sold up a uh, acreage um, in the in regional Victoria and we're now living up in Queensland in a house. Um, and I used to love getting on the ride on. You're absolutely right. Now, the science behind that is you're accessing your alpha brainwaves. So it feels good. You don't have to think about it and think about anything. You just you kind of get into a daydream state, which is really good for you. So I'm going to say, you know, from, you know, advice from your auntie Donna, go right ahead and continue doing that because that's really good for the mind um, mm. and for the soul, right? Yeah, really cool. It is. It's great to do a line and then. I've got a zero turn. So you go down the line and then you turn around and then you see the perfectly cut lawn and the, the rest of it is ready for attention. And it's, it's, I, I never, you know, you never realize that I've never had um, lawn like this before. I did when I was living with my mum and dad in a house where we had a push mower back in the old days. So, um, but then you, you start driving around the Southern Highlands and you go, gosh, that's, that's lovely lawn. I wonder how they get that looking so good. And, and then you have lawn envy, um, and then <laughs> it's a, a bit of a journey. Um, yeah, kind of, it's taking me back to our, one of our earlier co conversations where we talked about the things that are important to you at 23 or yet 23 or young versus what's important to you at now. Guarantee when you're 18 or 19, you couldn't care what everyone's lawn looked like. But, you know, here we are in our, in our 50s and, gee, lawns, that's an that's a important topic of conversation. Yeah, it's funny, it's funny too because, um, I mean, I've, we're just, my wife and I uh, just celebrated our seventh uh, wedding anniversary and uh, we've been together 10 years and before her i never really paid attention to flowers but she loves flowers and i notice now as i'm older i'm thought god that's a lovely looking plant and flowers and i'm going to myself i never would have thought of that and you know like 30 years ago but um yeah we do we do prioritize things. That's well, let me just tell you though, um, I'm coming up to 32 years of marriage um, and he still sends me flowers occasionally, mm. occasionally. Yeah, <laughs> I do. I give flowers, um, but I'm always, um, it's got to be random, isn't it? It's when you least expect it. Um, yeah, I, I would agree. As the receiver, I would agree. Mm. Um, let me ask you this. I, I'd be curious to know what your morning routine is. As, as someone who's pretty convinced that the first two hours of the day, are from, not from waking, because they say that um, according to the research, we're more productive or we're more mentally alert in the time between two to four and a half hours after waking. And so I'd love to know, A, does that um, does that resonate with you? Does that is that your experience? And B, um, what's your morning routine uh, as a CEO? Mm. Um, I'm a morning and night person, so I don't need much sleep. Um, the main thing that I've got to do when I get up is give the dog his medication because he's an epileptic, and if he doesn't have his meds at six a.m. 2 p.m., 6 p.m., and 10 p.m., um, he can go into an, an epileptic fit. So I must admit there's an aspect of um, having had to care for him and get him to the vet hospital um, that I'm motivated to make sure that I don't, or he doesn't have to go through that. Um, so there's, um, 
there's a you know getting up getting ready getting getting to work is pretty um pretty routine I, i'm the kind of uh, husband partner who um will think about you know what what washing has has been done or needs to be hung up dog poos that need to be picked up um um dishwasher unloaded turn the coffee machine on for my wife um there's a so it's it's all the you know, making sure that i'm i'm doing my part because my, my wife does heaps and it's an well it's impossible to keep up with her um but you know just playing my part um i will check in on emails or anything urgent that may have come in overnight from around the world or that needs attention um we go through my calendar lara and zia my two uh my ea zia and my P pa lara we go through um when we're in I mean, during the holidays we haven't but normally we'd go through the next day the day before so what have you got on who's happening so it's already fresh in my memory um and and so I've, i'm already thinking about know what's on um and then trying get out and get get to work i'm more productive i, I report to a ceo at home so i've got to get out so i can be the ceo at booktopia um otherwise um there'll always be something that needs to be attended to so uh, you know i try and get to work and and um and and get into the day um i really like the idea i, I call it the um activity horizon um I'm going to give you the opportunity to cut this bit out because the garbage has just decided to come through and it's extremely noisy. So uh, we can't hear it. We can't hear it here. Okay. All right. There we go. So what I like about what you've just talked about is, is what I say is the um, activity horizon, which is so a lot of people who are flat out are saying, I'm only thinking about what I needed to do yesterday and, or what I'm doing today or what's really proximate and urgent versus having a horizon site of around what's, what do I got to be thinking about for tomorrow? And one of the benefits I find when I'm working with people around the one day refund is when they begin to use some of the methods in the books of the activities, you're absolutely right. It's a very short book and it's full of activities and things to try. And it is designed to read um, on a flight between Sydney and Melbourne. Um, but when people start applying it, they, they, their activity horizon starts to shift even further. And so rather than thinking about what needs to be done right now or tomorrow or this week, they go, right, I'm in, I'm in such good shape with what I've got under control here. I now shift my horizon to next week or the week after or the month after that. Um, and so that, that makes me very happy to hear you say that we're always often talking about not necessarily what's due today. I'm already prepared for today. Now, how do I prepare for tomorrow? I think is a classic example of, of how I work with peace. Mm. I mean, obviously, I'm very fortunate um, to have an EA and, a, and now a PA. So um, that's amazing given, you know, for the, well, uh, 2014 was when I got my first EA. Uh, but what we do with my inbox, because a lot of emails are coming through, we have, they've got to move into other folders very quickly. So there's a folder called under two minutes, which means I can get through those emails in under two. I've got under 10 and over 10. I've got personal. I've got FYI. I've got to, uh, to read um, and um, business feeds and things. So um, some of those are 
of more of a high priority and and i will be looking at those uh, my inbox and flicking them into those folders if it's the evening or weekend as well so just so we have that and then if it looks like i'm really um um lagging behind they'll sit down with me in my office and we go through them and get through one of those um folders just to stay on top of it so that's you know some of the things that we do i really love that idea so um, I know we're talking about my new book, but my previous book, the first two hours, I, I say you should carve your day up according to your, your chronotype or the body clock. And I often say to people, so your, you know, it'll take two minutes folder. I'd say that's perfect for after lunch when we feel a little bit of an energetic slump, doesn't require too much intensity, and I can just churn through and get rid of them really quickly. Um, and I might even be able to do it, not that I espouse this, but I might even be able to eat a sandwich while I'm churning through those two-minute emails as well. So I love that structure and that setup. Nice one. Yeah, and, um, even, if, and even when I start looking at a two-minute one, I go, nah, this is, this is going to take more than two minutes. I just flick it into the other folder. That's it, because you need a bit more brain power for something that requires a bit more what I call a, a considered response. So anything that requires a considered response, and it'll be about 10% of your email according to the research, that says I should be doing that first thing in the morning because I've got to think and I want my brain to be on. Um, and again, from a capacity perspective, um, if we talk about decision fatigue, if I waste my morning doing all those two-minute emails and the little decisions that are associated with that, when I get to the end of the day and I need to make a big decision or do a considered response in an email, I'm just exhausted and I'm more inclined to do something like, oh, just say this right? Rather than actually, no, let's leave it till the next morning when I'm a bit more mm. switched on and I've had a chance to have a, a good night's sleep. Um, so are there any um, uh, productivity tips or anything that you think is a bit of a secret of your success? So I know you've just said you've had a recent diagnosis of ADHD and some of the symptoms of that can sometimes be very helpful from a productivity perspective because you you know your ability to focus sometimes is there anything that you think is is serving you really well around your ability to stay on top of stuff um so, so yeah so when i when i got diagnosed i mean the penny dropped on a lot of things in my life about how i operated in certain ways and the one thing i've worked out is that with ADHD, you love doing what you want to do and you hate doing the things you don't want to do. Um, and that means that the things that you don't want to do uh, may get neglected um, and, and um, you're, there's some imbalance in terms of um, get, getting things done. It can help if you're a, a sculptor or a painter or, or you know, some, some sort of inventor, but um, it does come at the cost of other things, relationships and another your tax not being done or things all those things so so from that perspective um understanding that um when you ask that question the first thing that came to mind is not beating myself up about the things that aren't happening so what uh, you know you can't see it here but my room my office that i'm to, uh, that i'm talking from is in a complete shambles most of the time and it's it's, I would prefer it to be organized and, and to have everything in its place, but I don't judge myself on that. That's not how, it's not who I, it, it doesn't impact me negatively um, looking at that going, oh my God, you're such a flob or you, uh, 
So that's one thing that's really helpful, not, not beating myself up about the things that aren't working well um, and less letting that go. And the other most important thing that I do is um, I, I'm, I work with an empowered team. So I'm, you know, I'm proud that people are getting on with it and, and I'm not, I'm not a dictatorial leader. I'm not, you must do what I say and constantly micromanaging everybody. It's like, no, that's what we agreed you, you need to do. And you're getting on with it and you'll make some decisions or check in with me on some bigger ones. Let's talk through it. And, and, and so from a productivity perspective, um, the more that I can make myself redundant, the better um, job I've done. And because they, um, should, they shouldn't. I, I talk about the difference between being essential and being involved. And that's precisely what you just described. You're essential. You're the CEO. You've got to make some big decisions. And if people need you to help them get blockers out of the way, great. But you don't have to be involved in the day-to-day. So, um, yeah, I talk about that in the working space um, part of my book. So, mm. oh, so you. A tick for me. Yay. That's, <laughs> you get ticks all over the place, Tony. I've got tick, 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 tick in our yeah, conversation today. That's <laughs> so great. So, Oh, dear, Donna, we come to the end of our hour. I've had Donna McGeorge with me, and she is the author of, and I, I want to bring it up and tell you because it's got a nice title here. Um, it's the, the One Day Refund, her third book in her series, Take Back Time, Spend It Wisely. And the other two books are, we have here, the first one was the 25-minute uh, meeting that came out in 2019. And then uh, the first two hours, which came out in 2019. So you had those those ones lined up already, obviously. Indeed, Correct. I did. In fact, it was a big year, 2019, just quietly launching two books. What was I thinking? Yeah, but um, pre-pandemic, so um, that that worked out well. So thank you so much for coming on the program and being the, the last person in my Plugged and Unplanned series, as I said earlier on that will be moving to the Tony Nash podcast. I will be interviewing authors, but I'll also be interviewing business people and thought leaders. And I look forward to having these kind of discussions and seeing what we all can learn together. Thank you for coming on the program and have a great next 25 minutes, two hours and one day. Thanks, thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to the Booktopia podcast channel. Don't forget, you can subscribe to us on SoundCloud and iTunes for free and get access to hundreds of author discussions, book analysis pieces and more. Or if your eyes need a workout, head to Booktopia TV on YouTube. Don't forget, for all books featured in this podcast and for access to a whole bunch of other fun content on our blog, head to Booktopia. Australia's local bookstore at booktopia.com.au